Uh, my name is Preston. I'm going to share with you uh, God's word this morning. Uh, Brent's off again this week. Um, he'll be back next week. We'll be back in Matthew uh, next week. I, what I want to do this morning is actually pick up where uh, John Cole left off last week. If you were here last week, John Cole shared about uh, Paul's conversion and uh, God's grace in, in Paul's conversion. I mean, here you have a guy who is trying to kill Christians. He's on a mission to rid Judaism of all these Christians coming in and God stops him in his tracks and says what a perfect candidate to become my primary missionary to take the gospel to the very people that he is upset about who are coming into the to the Christian faith and so God invades Paul's life with grace but but it, you know grace is more than just something that God uses to convert us it actually works on in through our lives. And we see that in Paul's life. John shared last week about how in Acts 18, we have this incident where Paul's going and talking to the Jewish people in the synagogues, and they get all upset. And the leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes, takes Paul to the leader, the Roman leader, throws him down and says, this guy needs to be arrested. This guy's causing problems. He's talking about this, you know, crucified Messiah. He's doing this. He's just causing problems. You need to arrest him. And the Roman leader says, I'm not going to arrest him. What do I care about your stupid little Jewish squabbles? Get, you know, get out of my face. And Sosthenes ends up getting beaten right there in front, of the, in front of the Roman leader. And I remember reading that story a while back and thinking, like, my first reaction is like, yes! You know, like, here's a guy trying to get Paul beat up, and he got what he deserves. But grace and getting what you deserve are two radically different things. Grace is all about not getting what you deserve, right? And so Paul, at some point, he shares Jesus with Sosthenes. And this guy who was opposing Paul ends up getting saved. We, we read in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul says, Dear Corinthians, you know, me and my brother and your brother Sosthenes are writing this letter to you. And he becomes part of this Christian movement. So I want to I keep talking about grace this morning. I want to talk about uh, this, this familiar thing called grace. And I think, I, I wonder if because grace has become kind of a buzzword, right? I mean, it's something that the Christians say all over the place, and we say it before meals, and we talk, but we name churches grace, and we talk about grace so much. And sometimes when you talk about something so much, and sometimes when something becomes so familiar, it loses its luster. It loses its, its freshness, its power. I've got um, students, I'm, I'm a professor, and I got students that come to me and, and say, you know, they, come, they turn in a paper, uh, they'll turn in a paper a few days late, three days late, and they'll say, Professor, can you please give me some what? Grace. And that bugs me for two reasons, actually. You know, my first response is no, you know, <laughs> you knew the deadline, you should have gotten it out of time. But it almost irritates me that they would use grace as just simply like leniency. As if grace is just accepting a paper late. Or, or the, the common definition, the definition I most often hear of grace is unconditional acceptance. Unconditional acceptance. God, you know, God's grace is his unconditional acceptance of sinners. And that's pretty good, but I don't think it's good enough. You know, unconditional acceptance. It's almost like God, God's like, you know, over here waiting. Waiting for us to come to him. And if we, if we, you know, come on, if you can make it here, then I'll unconditionally accept you. 
As if God is some sort of passive recipient of us coming to him. Grace, rather, is God's aggressive, relentless pursuit of his enemies. People who are unloving, unworthy, unthankful. God's grace is not just his ability to save sinners. God's grace is his delight in undelightful people. God's grace means that in spite of our mess, in spite of our sin, and in spite of our addiction to, to food and drink and sex and porn and pride and self and success and self and comfort and self, and in spite of all these things, God desires, in the words of Lewis, to transform us into real ingredients of divine happiness. God doesn't just love us. He actually likes us. <laughs> even when we are messed up. There, there's, a, there's a famous um, phrase that's tossed around in Christian circles. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. You guys heard that? Um, according to one survey, 68% of church-going, born-again Christians think that's a verse in the Bible. That God helps those who first get the ability, muster up the ability to help themselves. So God's like, Hey, if you, can, if you can meet me halfway, then, I, then I'll step in and help you out. That's not the gospel. The good news is that God doesn't help those who first help themselves. The good news is God rescues those who realize they can't do anything for themselves. We are so prone to do, to focus on doing, doing, doing. And Christ says, it is done. God's love isn't based on our work. It's based on the work of his son. Almost started rapping right there, because that rhymes. <laughs> when Jesus breathed out his last on the cross, his last words, he didn't say, I gave you a good start, now take it from here. He said, it is finished. And so I want to pick up where John left off, because I think when, when John was describing God's grace in the life of Paul, this Christian killer, this grace that transformed Paul into an enemy lover. I mean, the, my first thought was, that, that's actually not abnormal. <laughs> like, like so, so you could be prone to think, wow, that's this really a radical example. Like, you know, that's really abnormal. That's not really how, how God normally works. That's actually exactly how God works. In fact, I want to look at the 12 apostles. Um, <laughs> In, uh, in Luke chapter 6, 12, the, the choosing of the 12 apostles. Um, we, we call them uh, apostles. Jesus, I guess Jesus calls them apostles, so it's not a bad term. It, it is what they are. I like to call them the 12 thugs because, as we'll see this morning, I think that they were first century thugs. In fact, the, the main kind of theme for this morning is, is, is the thing that drove Jesus, to choose these particular 12 men, had nothing to do with their inherent righteousness, their inherent worth. They brought nothing to the table. God, through Jesus, deliberately handpicks 12 really messed up people. So messed up that one of them left, right? And, and Jesus deliberately picked these men so that when they turned the world upside down, there would be no doubt that it was due to the power and grace of God and nothing to do with the power and capabilities of these men. Luke uh, chapter 6, and there's several different passages we could read here, but let's go to Luke 6 verse 12. Luke 6 verse 12, it says that in these days 
Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And, and I think he's probably praying all night because he's trying to figure out which, you know, he's, he's got all these disciples following him and he's trying to figure out, well, God, which, which he's praying to the Father, which 12 do you want me to select? I think he was kind of shocked when he got the list. You know, <laughs> here's the 12 you got. Um, it says, when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And then verse 14 talks about who they are. Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon who was called the Zealot and Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Jesus deliberately handpicks these guys not because they have it all together but precisely because they don't. Let's take Peter, for example. We probably know more about Peter than any of the other 12, the other 11 apostles that followed Jesus. We, we've got a lot of stories that, that talk about Peter. We see Peter on into the book of Acts. In fact, Peter becomes like the, one of the main leaders of the early Christian church in Jerusalem. And in Acts 2, he gets up and preaches a sermon and tons of people get saved. And then in Acts 3, he's healing people and he's going to prison for his faith. And he's just this bold, dynamic leader but all throughout Jesus' ministry, I mean, Jesus was, or Peter was a pretty messed up guy. I mean, here's a guy that walked day in and day out with Jesus, and he still doesn't get it. One of my favorites, uh, the, the foot washing incident, where in John 13, where, where Jesus, at the, at the night before he's betrayed, he, he, he stoops down as they're all eating, and, and he gets a bucket of water and a rag, and he goes around and starts washing the feet of all the disciples. And, and nobody's saying anything. They don't know what to do, but it's like, hey, if Jesus is going to do this, Jesus is going to do it, right? He's Jesus. You know, do what he wants to do. But then Peter pipes up and says, you're not going to wash my feet. Ain't no way you're touching my dirty old feet. And then Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. See, there's, there's some kind of symbolic going on here. And, and so Peter kind of goes, he does a full 180, you know, shift. Well, they're not my feet. You know, wash my whole body, Jesus. Why don't you just go ahead and give me a sponge bath? If, if this is a good thing for me, then just wash head to toe. And, and, and Jesus is like, no, that's not what it's all about, you know. In, in, um, in Matthew 16, right, right after Peter, he does something great. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's this great moment where he says, I believe in you, Jesus. But then Jesus starts talking about going to the cross and, and getting crucified. And Peter says, uh-uh, I ain't going to allow that to happen. Ain't nobody going to crucify my Messiah. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> he looks at Peter and says, you are speaking the words of the devil. In, um, at the end of Jesus' life, uh, 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 right, right before he's arrested, Peter's, this is, this is you know, uh, probably one of the more famous incidents of Peter and Jesus when he denies Jesus three times. Well, again, we're, I think we're familiar with this story, and so we don't realize, like, man, here's a guy who's been walking with Jesus for three years. Three years. And has just told Jesus, I will... I will die for you. I will never, I will never deny you. And then here we go. He says, he doesn't just deny, you know, people say, weren't you with Jesus? I, you, you sound like you're with him. Yeah, I think I saw you with them. And he doesn't even deny that he was with Jesus. He says, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> Jesus, never heard of the guy. 
I mean, can you imagine if you said that about, like, if I said that about my wife, you know? You're married to Christine, right? Never heard of the woman. And I can imagine, like, if there was, if there was, like, a, you know, some big burly soldiers with clubs, you know, and they're like, all right, Peter, you, you with him? You were with him. You were with him, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I can imagine, okay, that'd be kind of scary. But according to Matthew, Matthew's gospel, do you know who asked him if he was with Jesus? Two slave girls <laughs> and some random people looking on. They weren't even like soldiers or government officials. It was like two little girls like, hey, were you with Jesus? No, no, not me. No, I don't even know who he is. And what I, you know, what I love, what I love about, what I love about that incident is that it shows how fragile our, our faith is. Our faith is upheld by the grace of God. We can't even claim like our faith as our independent power, like I'm the one that believed in you, God. And God says, if it were, if it were solely up to you, you would, you would deny me just like Peter. In fact, just a couple verses before the whole denying Jesus thing, Jesus tells Simon, or Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. This is a interesting kind of window into what's going on behind the scenes. Apparently there was some, you know, Jesus and Satan kind of talking over Peter and Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The only reason why, why, why Peter didn't continue to deny and run from Jesus. The only reason why he was able to get back on his feet and make a turnaround was because Jesus in his grace stepped in and was cradling Peter's faith. And that's the same with all of us. If it were not for the grace of God, the continual outpouring of God's pursuit of undelightful people, if it wasn't for that, we would all run from him. And then there's James and John. James and John, um, these guys are really interesting, James and John. Um, John, you know, he ended up going and writing several uh, books of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. Um, and, and in that, in those books, he talks a lot about love. You read 1st John, and it's all about, you know, we need to love our brothers, we need to be all lovey-dovey and everything. And and you, you get this picture of John as just kind of like, kind of contemplative, you know, like just such a lovable, patient guy. Um, actually, James and John, these guys, these guys were pretty messed up. We know from, um, you know, we know they're fishermen. When, when Jesus calls James and John, he, they, you know, they were in the boat with their father in Mark 1. He, they're out fishing. And... Uh, you, you may think, well, if they're fishermen, they're kind of hardcore blue collar, like poor, you know, maybe maybe they're they're just poor guys trying to kind of trying to squeak out a living, you know. But it's interesting. In Mark one, it says uh, that when they followed Jesus, they left their father Zebedee, who's in charge of the, their fishing business. They left their father in the boat with the hired servants, plural servants. Now, in that day and age, most people were really poor. Like 80% of the population lived at or below the poverty line. Like most people were poor. Only the wealthy could afford servants. And so it seems that while most fishermen may have been kind of poor, these guys were probably pretty wealthy. 
So they come from a, a, a family with a bit of wealth in, in a culture where, there was most, where most people were poor. My favorite thing, though, is that the, Jesus calls these guys sons of thunder. James and John, you guys are sons of thunder. And it probably has to do with the fact that they should have gone to anger management before they signed up to be a disciple of Jesus. These guys were prone to, like, burst out with anger. In fact, we see this in, um, in, in uh, Luke 9 when they're passing through the Samaritan village, right? They're, the, you know, Jesus and his disciples are going through Samaria, and they're going, they're headed to Jerusalem, and, and they're, they're looking for a place to stay. And you know, they keep getting rejected from all the Samaritan uh, houses in this village. And James and John say, um, Jesus, would this be a good time for us to, you know, call down fire from heaven and just nuke the entire village? Men, women, children, doesn't matter. Let's just wipe it off the planet. I mean, these guys were like, they were like, at any moment, they could have flown off the handle. I mean, think about the pride here, too. They say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? You know, like, you know, Jesus, the, you know, the, the whole... You know, you healed the lepers, and then that was kind of cute. And, you know, you cast out demons. That's pretty good, you know. But come on, we're, we're going to have to call out the big guns for this one. <laughs> Why don't you step aside and let us call down fire and nuke this entire village? That's James and John. They, they, were, they were so prone to just burst out with anger. Have you ever had those moments? I mean, it, it can be so embarrassing, right? So embarrassing that that the, the least little thing can cause, that works for me, probably for you too, like you can get so angry so quickly. In fact, just ye- yesterday, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but uh, j- just yesterday, I don't think my wife knows this. <laughs> I was like, look, I was trying to fix a sprinkler and I had this part and I was like looking everywhere for this one, just a few screws, right? You have this major project you gotta do and, and I'm looking for these two screws, three screws, and for an hour and a half, I'm like walking around my garage, looking at the same place like 10 times. Like it was just here. And I remember having this water bottle in my hand, pacing around. And, and I just, you start getting hot, you know, I started like, and it took everything in me not to just throw that water bottle as hard as I could up against the wall. Like I had this, I said, like, break it. I want to shatter it. Like I can't find these screws. <laughs> I'm like, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I'm a Bible teacher. And I can't find screws and that's just going to set me off. And I was like, how embarrassing, what if a kid saw that? Like, Daddy, what, why are you throwing that water bottle in front of me? <laughs> we are so weak. There's another incident. Um, this is a long time ago, so <laughs> if this happened recently, it would have been really embarrassing. But I, I used to play baseball in college, and baseball, baseball is the worst sport because um, it's, it's the most frustrating sport to play. I mean, success is failing seven out of ten times, right? Like a 300 batting average, like that's really good. And like, well, you failed seven out of ten times. And I remember one day, one day um, striking out three times in one game. <laughs> not, 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 in, not in a series, but like in one game, they call it the hat trick. It's a hockey term where, you know, three goal years, three strikeouts. I remember being so, so angry that I took the helmet and I started beating myself in the head and I shattered the helmet over my head. Cracked it. People are like, whoa, you know. There's another time. Should I stop? I could spend the whole hour talking. One more. T- so this one, I, <laughs> I struck out again three times. I struck out a lot in baseball. And I remember being so few. And this time it was beyond angry. I, I ripped my jersey. <laughs> and I walked to the end of the dugout, climbed inside the trash can, and sat there for, like, the rest of the inning. 
And it was like the eighth inning. So I wasn't going to get up again, but we made a comeback, and so I actually had to bat again. So I had to go up with the jer- jersey all ripped out. And at this point, I, I just want to throw the bat. I just wanted to kill it. I just, and I struck out again four times in one game. <laughs> and I, I would consider myself, on the scale of things, kind of fairly patient laid that guy. But even within a second, well up or screaming like a screaming infant or something there's certain noises that just can well up like anger inside of people and Jesus knows that Jesus knows that he looks at James and John and says man you guys got a serious anger problem and that's why I chose you (laughs) you're perfect candidates for my grace you're perfect candidates because then when John goes and writes a letter and talks about love and patience, and when he goes on to love his enemies and pray for his persecutors, Jesus says, everybody that knows you knows that that's my grace and not your righteousness. Jesus loves to enter into the lives of people who don't have it all together because then when God uses them to do things for his kingdom, everybody knows it's due to his grace and not our own. Jesus also selected Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. We don't know hardly anything about Simon the Zealot, but that little title is interesting, the Zealot. Now, uh, religious zeal um, in, in, in the Bible means something. It doesn't mean, if you were a zealous person, it doesn't mean you like prayed all day and like sang worship songs all day or whatever, like the kind of more stoic, contemplative person. That, that's in the Bible, if, if, if you know, that type of person is referred to as being pious or piety. But the word zeal in the Bible is often used of people who violently and aggressively defend their faith by killing people if need be. We see it in the Old Testament, a guy named Phineas in, in, in the book of Numbers. He saw a, a, a Jewish man having relations with a pagan Canaanite woman. They were fornicating. He took his spear, went in the tent, and ran them through. Like, in the act, okay? And it says that the the Psalms celebrate that, saying, out of religious zeal, he did this thing. Or Elijah slaughtered a bunch of priests to Baal, and it said that it was out of his zeal. In fact, Paul says it was out of his zeal that he was driven to kill Christians. Those who were religiously zealous, who, who would have been called a zealot, were people who were kind of like James and John. They, they weren't called zealots, but they were people who would violently and aggressively defend their faith. In fact, in the first century, there was a whole group of Jews that called themselves the zealots. It was like an official religious militia, if you will. I mean, you, you may have heard of, you know, you got the Pharisees, the Sadducees. There's also another group called the Essenes. They live down by the Dead Sea. And then you have another group called the Zealots. And the Zealots formed their very identity as a religious group based on the fact that they were on a mission to violently rid the land of any Roman influence. If you got in a bar fight, you would want Simon on your side. (laughs) So here's a guy... It's a perfect candidate for God's grace. The one who spent his life killing his enemies would end up loving them. The one who who tried to slaughter his persecutors would end up praying for those who persecute him. 
And then there's Matthew. Matthew is a good transition, I think, because uh, we're, we're studying the book of Matthew. And so I don't know if you've thought about, you know, when, when, you're, when you're reading the book of Matthew and, and um, you think about the, the person writing this letter. Again, sometimes we have kind of a faceless, you know, image of some holy man writing the Bible. I mean, God used some pretty messed up people to write his word. And I love that about the Christian faith. And, and the book of Matthew is written by Matthew, obviously. Sometimes he's called Levi. And of all the thugs that Jesus chose, I think Matthew is the worst. It says that he was in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 6, it says that he was a tax collector. Um, and as you know, you know, tax collectors, they, they were the, the Jewish people who were... Um, helping collect tax money for the Romans. The Romans were ruling over Israel. And it's, hard, it's so hard for us to know that categorically because we live in America and nobody rules over America, right? I mean, we do the ruling more than anybody else. But just pick, I mean, picture, picture, this probably won't happen. So you got to imagine, you got to think hard. You got to imagine, your, your imagination has to go here. Picture ISIS parachute, parachuting in and, and they conquer, they conquer America. Slip, slip past Pentagon, CIA, everything. They conquer America, and now ISIS is actually ruling over the land. Now, now you can go to work, you can have a family, you can do your thing, but all your, your you know, half of your money, um, it goes to fund ISIS. They're in control. They have say over how you live. You come home from working 12 hours a day knowing that 50% of your money goes to fund ISIS as they continue to conquer the world. Come, you go out to dinner with your family, you, you come home and there's this ISIS soldier sitting out front and he smiles at you and whack! Slaps your wife across the face. <laughs> Can't do anything about it. They're ruling over you. Spits on your kids, trips them. Just, you know, entertainment. Then you got your friend Matthew. The, the kid who you played ball with growing up. The kid who you did birthday parties with. The kid who you, who you were friends with. You did sleepovers with him. He decides that, you know what, it's more financially beneficial for me to work for ISIS. And now he is the one who is physically taking your money to fund ISIS, ruling over America. And he's also skimming off the top. And, and he's actually living a very well-to-do life because he's stealing from you. In, for, in the first century, there's actually two different types of tax collectors. There's chief tax collectors... And then there's the normal, like, on-the-ground tax collectors. And we know uh, Zacchaeus, right, the wee little man. He was a chief tax collector. Now, chief tax collectors were sort of behind the scenes. They, they were the leaders of all the other tax collectors. And he, he wouldn't have been really engaging people face-to-face, -face, Zacchaeus. But Matthew would have. He was a front-line thug. And the only people who would have been able to make that sort of job are people that would have had incredibly thick skin to endure insults, wads of spit, attempted brawls. I mean, Matthew's the one that has to physically take money from the hands of people like Simon the Zealot. According to Jewish tradition, they, had, they, they lived excessively immoral lives, tax collectors. They were the modern-day, you know, the, the ancient, like, gangbangers and drug dealers. They were known for living disgusted and perverted lives. Their occupation was considered on the same plane as thieves and murderers, and they were considered no better than dung collectors. And according to Jewish tradition, they were past the point of repentance. It was impossible, in the Jewish way of thinking, impossible for a tax collector to repent because their sin was so great, there's no way 
God could ever accept them into the kingdom. And, and then we read in, in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. It's Matthew's other name. Sitting at his tax booth. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you follow me? What, what would you think there? Follow me? You're, you're the Messiah. You're the deliverer who's going to deliver us from Rome. And you're telling this guy who's working for ISIS to follow me? I mean, you better be going out back and hanging him. <laughs> follow me. Levi gets up, leaves everything, and follows Jesus. I mean, you could... You could I, I don't think there, there's not a single person here that you, you transport yourself in that situation. You're looking on. You, you're, you're a religious person. You're trying to worship God. There's not a single person here that wouldn't initially be filled with hate and anger, confusion. Follow me. And then verse 29. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And, and, and again, you, it doesn't, you pass over it until you realize who tax collectors were. And it says, Levi, this excessively immoral person who's, who's making money off of political and religious treason, this thug of all thugs throws this massive party. He's so excited to follow Jesus. And he invites all his friends. Now, he hasn't had time to get any religious friends, Okay. This is like, he, gets, he follows Jesus and says, you know what, I'm going to throw all this behind me and I'm going to follow Jesus. And, and he's like, all my friends, why don't you come? we got a party, we've got to celebrate. I'm following the Messiah now. Who are his friends? Well, it says, I mean, other, a whole crowd of tax collectors. A whole crowd of tax collectors and others. Another passage says that tax collectors and sinners, the dregs of society are all in his room partying because Matthew's so excited that he has found Jesus. No wonder the Pharisees got upset. I mean, they're, they're, there's, there's not a bar in Boise that would house this group of people. You'd have to go all the way to Nampa to find a place to. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's no wonder. You know, I mean, Jesus had a real shady reputation, right? They thought he was a drunkard and a glutton hanging out with all these messed up. It's no wonder he had a shady reputation. I, I just wonder. If this isn't accurate, then throw it out, whatever. But I just wonder if, we are, if, 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 we're, if, we're tr if we're truly following Jesus, and Jesus had a shady reputation because he was so close to really messed up people, I just wonder if we're not quite following Jesus the way we should unless we have that kind of shady reputation. And until real staunch religious people are kind of grumbling, kind of worried, kind of like, oh, I don't know, you're getting a little too close to those people. We often think that the apostles were these saintly people. Put that picture up there. I got a couple pictures I want to show you. This is a, this is a typical um, painting of the 12 apostles. In fact, if you Googled, like did Google images, 12 apostles, you know, you'd probably get a picture like this where it has these real kind of saintly, you know, they have, they have the tilt, right? The, like they're just looking at Jesus, like, 
they, they, they're, they're so righteous that gold is glowing from their heads, right? And we think, man, if we can only be that good, if we can only be as good as the 12 apostles, man, I mean, these, this is Jesus' all-star team. Actually, throw that other picture up there. This is probably closer to Jesus' all-star team. This is um, it's a painting by he's my favorite artist. Uh, Peter Housen is a Scottish artist. And uh, I don't know if he did the covers for the old Iron Maiden albums or whatever, but it kind of looks like it. Um, this is Jesus, a modern-day rendition of The Last Supper. And, and I love it because I, I show this in class to my students, and, and the first thing is like, whoa. Why is he hanging out with all these thugs? I think Peter is probably the, he's probably the guy in the beard up there, you know. Um, John is the one right here, like leaning, kind of leaning on Jesus' chest right there. I think Matthew's the one with the wife beater right there. <laughs> like a frontline thug who's going to rip money out of people's hands. You've got to be pretty tough. I think that's probably Matthew. GC Judas kind of getting ready to, to get out of there. I think that crazy guy in the bottom corner is probably Simon the Zealot, right? The first century suicide bomber. <laughs> You got a guy, you know. I've had people actually get upset. Like, wait a minute, one of them's smoking a cigar. Jesus, Jesus wouldn't put up with that. Like, do you realize what Jesus put up with? <laughs> a cigar, really? Like, we're still going back to that? Jesus deliberately handpicks first-century thugs to turn the world upside down. I mean, I wonder. So, think about this. How did, how did it work out between Matthew and Simon? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, there, this is one of those times when there's no verse that says this, but I'm like 99% sure that Jesus was kind of chuckling when he said, hey, Matthew, come here, come here, Matthew. I want you to meet Simon the Zealot. Come here, you guys gotta, you guys gotta talk a little bit. I'm gonna, you know, I imagine Matthew is like, you know, just like, when he, you know, and Simon's like, you know, I, he, I, I'm sure he had to break up a fight or attempted brawl or something. Historically speaking, Simon made his identity in killing people like Matthew. And Jesus says, watch this world. I'm going to take these two guys and they're going to join arms around a gospel that says that Jesus dies for his enemies. They're going to join arms. They're going to proclaim the good news that the same grace that invaded and conquered the life of Simon also conquered and invaded the life of Matthew because grace, grace levels the playing field. What's the point of all this? Jesus doesn't just put up with messed up people. Jesus loves to use the unusable. Jesus delights in the undelightful. Jesus loves to gather the unexpected into the kingdom of God and commission them to go do the impossible. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. This is uh, Jesus speaking to Paul. For my power, Jesus says, is made, is made perfect in weakness. 
Luke 5, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save, not the found, he came to seek and save the lost. Paul says in Romans 5, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, not we were enemies and then we started to clean up our act and, and conquer our addictions and quit this and quit that. And we kind of started to pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and, and we started to get our act together. And then Jesus said, all right, you know what, I guess now I could use you. No, it was while we were our, his enemies that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God chose, 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We are saved by God's one-way love, his unilateral, unconditional grace that invaded us and conquered us, not based on what we have done or not done, but based on what Jesus said on the cross. It is finished. God's one-way love is mediated to us through Jesus' work, his finished work on the cross. Prostitutes, businessmen, drug dealers, Awana champions, suicide bombers, suburban soccer moms, gangsters, and even pastors. <laughs> we are all recipients, and in some ways, victims of God's love for us. Danny and the band, they're going to come up, but I, I want to read one more verse, uh, Psalm 23. Uh, Psalm 23, one of the most famous psalms written by David, probably, um, it's probably written at the end of his life, or towards the end of his life. Um, it says at the end of the psalm, it says, uh, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It actually, the, the Hebrew literally says, I will return to dwell in the house of the Lord, which means he probably wrote this psalm after he was exiled from his kingdom. Towards the end of his life, David was exiled from his kingdom, and he says, and he writes Psalm 23, he says, I'm going to return. Why? Because he says, surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will return to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because David was such a righteous guy, right? No, he wrote this, okay, timeline. He wrote this after he lusted after his best friend's wife, committed adultery with her, lied about it, tried to cover it up, got him drunk, got her husband killed so that he could marry his wife and then continued to lie about it until he got confronted. David this guy was excessively sinful. In one moment, this guy committed more sins than you can even count on one hand. I mean, I personally have never met anybody as sinful as David. I mean, maybe you have. I don't know anybody who actually killed one of his best friends so that he could marry his best friend's wife that he actually already committed adultery with and lied about it. Never met anybody like that. If somebody knew God's grace, it was David. And after that moment, he pens Psalm 23 and says, Surely your goodness, God, and your love will follow me. And e even that, the Hebrew word for follow, radaf, it actually is used often to refer to a predator hunting down its prey. It's often translated pursue, chase, conquer. God, your loving kindness will chase after me and conquer me. 
Not based on what I do or don't do, based on what you have done on my behalf. Your love will follow me and my, my sin will try to run from you, but your grace is faster than my sin. And you will conquer me because you delighted me, not because I'm delightful, but because you are a God who loves to use messed up people like David, messed up people like Peter and James and John, people who struggle with anger, people who struggle with addictions and have all sorts of fears and insecurities and, and issues going on. God loves, he loves, he delights to enter into people with really messed up lives and ongoing battles with sin and rescue them. It says now, now people will know that it's by my grace and my grace alone. Father, we thank you for hunting us down and pursuing us with your grace. We thank you for taking such fragile, broken people with lists of sin, a long list of addictions, struggles, failures. And God, you know all that, and it's because we are weak that you desire to show off your strength and your mercy and your grace in our life. Lord, maybe go on this week and celebrate the finished work of your son, Lord. We celebrate those three words. It is.